Hello and welcome into episode number 63 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible questions are, how important is forgiveness? Should I forgive somebody who really, really hurt me? And what if they don't ask for forgiveness? So today's show is all about the coronavirus. Oh, actually, wait, that's really what every other news item is about. Today, we're actually going to be talking about forgiveness. And believe it or not, that is really much more important than hashtag COVID-19. Our passages include Exodus chapter 14, which talks about God's miraculous rescue of the Israelites via the Red Sea collapse on Pharaoh's army. Job 32 introduces us to Elihu, a very enigmatic figure in Job, who actually rebukes both Job's friends and Job himself, and he might just be right on the money, particularly because he doesn't get in trouble with God at the end of the book. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul urges forgiveness and comfort for one who had sinned that Paul apparently had recommended church discipline on previously. Notice his gentleness here. It's a good, it is a good thing to call people to repentance and church discipline is a very biblical and much needed and really honestly fairly neglected thing in today's church, but so is gentle restoration after church discipline. And our focus passage, has a lot in common with 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It's Luke 17, and Jesus teaches us some challenging things about forgiveness. For instance, verse 3, 4, and 5 say, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, that's one day, and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord after that, Increase our faith. Man, can you, know, can you imagine? That's a tough teaching of Jesus. We would say repentance means you're going to stop doing the thing. But Jesus says, if somebody sins against you seven times in a day and keeps coming back and saying, I repent, not you should forgive him, not, you know, think about forgiving him, but you must forgive him. Forgiveness is critically important to the Christian life. Our faith is built on forgiveness through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, but our faith is also contingent on forgiveness. What I mean by that is, even though I wholeheartedly believe in and affirm salvation by grace through faith, I also wholeheartedly believe in and affirm the teaching of Jesus that says that we will not be forgiven of our sins if we do not forgive those who sin against us. So consider Matthew six fourteen through 15. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. So does that mean we can lose our salvation by unforgiveness? I don't think so. I actually think it means that those who are really and truly saved will and must and can't avoid forgiving other people. And I like John Piper's explanation of this dynamic. And he says, the way I would put it is this, if the forgiveness that we received at the cost of the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is so ineffective, Effective in our hearts that we are bent on holding unforgiving grudges and bitterness against someone else, we are not a good tree. 
We are not saved. We don't cherish the forgiveness of Jesus. We don't trust the forgiveness of Jesus. We don't embrace and treasure this forgiveness. We are hypocrites if we don't forgive. We're just mouthing. We haven't ever felt the piercing, joyful wonder that God paid the life of his son. I mean, how in the world could a could I hold a grudge against somebody when I have not been offended nearly like God has been offended so highly that he has to pay the life of his son in order for me to be forgiven? That is exactly the point of Matthew 18, says Piper, with the parable of the unforgiving servant, which is like a parabolic form of Matthew 6.15, where the servant owes the king like a billion dollars. It's just off the charts what he owes, and he gets forgiven freely. But then he goes out and he feels that forgiveness so little, it means so little to him, that he strangles his fellow servant for like $10. And when the king hears about it, he sends him to jail. And Jesus concludes that parable like this, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's terrifying, right? So here's the thing. Look, many of you have been hurt. Some of you have been hurt terribly. You have lifelong wounds in your soul, in your spirit, in your emotions. You feel them in your body. Some of you have been physically abused. Some of you have been sexually abused. Some of you have been abandoned. And some of you have been treated in all sorts of cruel and horrible ways. The ways in which we humans hurt each other is inexcusable and gut-wrenching. And yet, knowing that, the Lord calls us to forgive. And so I want to spend the rest of our time together, before we get deeper into the Word, uh, I want to try and persuade you, using the Word, using Scripture, why you and I must forgive those who hurt us, why it's good for us, why it's Christ-honoring, why it doesn't mean justice won't happen. So let's do this. Let's read Luke chapter 17, and then we're going to look at a few more scriptures on forgiveness and consider what forgiveness is, why it's necessary, and also what forgiveness is not, because I think we can have some misconceptions on what exactly forgiveness is and what exactly it isn't. So this is Luke chapter 17, verse 1 from the Christian Standard Bible. He said to his disciples, Offenses will surely come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Which one of you, having a servant, tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, Prepare something for me to eat? Get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. Later on, you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, We are worthless servants. We've only done our duty. 
While traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, See here or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he told the disciples, The days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. They will say to you, See there, or see here. Don't follow or run after them. For as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first it is necessary that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, but on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night two will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked him. He said to them, Where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. So I want to share with us five powerful verses on forgiveness as we talk about why we must forgive, what forgiveness is, and what forgiveness isn't. Ephesians 4, 30-32, Paul says, Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Luke 6.37, Jesus says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Mark 11.25, Jesus says, Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Colossians 3.12-13 
Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Matthew 18, we already read some of this, we'll read the beginning and ending of this parable. Peter approached Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as eh, seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but seventy times seven. Then he tells the parable, and at the end of the parable he says this, Because the master was angry, he handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. And here Jesus saying this, so also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from the heart. I think these passages and other like them make it pretty clear that forgiveness is both necessary and commanded. We must forgive. There's not another option biblically. Jesus makes it crystal clear. But, 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 I I hear some of your objections now in my mind, imagining your struggle, and I can hear them because I've been pastoring for like 25 years, and I've heard other people raise the objections with me, and shooting straight with you, I've had the objections too. It's not easy to forgive. But allow me to recommend a book or a resource for, for those of you for whom forgiveness is a struggle. The book is called Total Forgiveness, and it's by a guy named R.T. Kendall. The book has been a tremendous blessing to me. And actually, Dr. Kendall has been a big blessing to me as well. If you're not for familiar with him, Dr. R.T. Kendall is an American pastor. He's born in the South, but he lived in England for most of his life. He pastored Westminster Chapel, which was formerly pastored back in the day by Martin Lloyd-Jones and G. Campbell Morgan. Well, Dr. Kendall pastored there for 25 years. In my younger years as a minister, One of the great privileges of my life is I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Kendall several times. I was always amazed at his kindness and his graciousness and his willingness to give friendly counsel and advice. Uh, We had a church. I was at a church. I was like the youth minister at a church that did a a lot of conferences and stuff. And one time I had the opportunity to pick up Dr. Kendall and his wife from the Birmingham airport and take them a couple of hours north in Alabama. And they landed. We met them. This was the first time I was driving. Um, and a buddy of mine who was a ch- children's minister at that church, it was us and his wife and Dr. Kendall. And, you know, we're thinking they just had a long flight. I don't remember if they were flying in from England or Florida. I, I don't remember where. But we were thinking they had a long flight. We really wanted to talk to this guy. But we were going to be chill because we figured they just wanted to rest in the car. Well, Dr. Kendall could not have been more friendly to us. In fact, I don't know if he sensed our eagerness to engage him or not. We tried to be quiet, but he kind of leaned up to us from the back seat and he said, Okay, boys, we got a couple of hours drive here. If you guys want to talk, if you got any questions, anything like that. Let her rip. I'll do the best I can for you. Now, those weren't his exact words. I think his exact words were actually far more gracious than that. 
But I can tell you, my heart leapt to hear this seasoned, mighty man of God who'd been in ministry for, I don't know, 50 years at the time, it just kind of saying, hey, ask me anything. If I can help you, I'd love to. And for almost two hours, we bombarded that poor man with questions, and he knocked it out of the park. I don't know that I've ever gotten so much wisdom from one person in one day. It was fabulous. And then we we had a, a several other chances to meet him and go out to eat with him and all this kind of stuff. And even though he's kind of famous, he's written like, I don't know, 40 books or something, he was, and we were peons, nothing, just just like I said, youth ministers, children ministers in our 20s, he was so gracious to us. Now, I got, around that time, I got his book, Total Forgiveness. It's the best resource I've ever encountered on forgiveness, and I've recommended it to dozens of people that have been wounded. Partially, I've done that because forgiveness is commanded clearly by the Word of God, and we have to do it. Like I said, it's not an option. But, and here's the thing that's really important, because one of the most healing things a wounded person can do is to forgive the person that hurt them. Now, that might not make a lot of sense, but it is. Nothing brings the peace of God more powerfully into the heart and life of a wounded person than forgiveness. And I know that's hard to believe, but trust me, it will release the power and the peace of God into your life. And you might say, well, but that's not fair. It's not right. So let's talk a little bit about what forgiveness is not so that we don't misunderstand what God is commanding us to do. And I've condensed some of these from the book, Total Forgiveness. And and I'm only going to do four of these. I think the book has like eight or ten. You really should read the book. But if you've only got a few minutes, maybe this will be helpful for you. What forgiveness is not. Number one, forgiveness is not approving nor excusing what the person who hurt you did. God doesn't approve of sin. He hates sin. Jesus showed great mercy to the woman caught in adultery in John seven fifty three through eight eleven. but he also called her to leave her life of sin. By the way, we're going to talk about that, whether or not that was in the original text of the Bible. I wrote like a 20-something page paper on it back in the day. I believe it was. But Continuing on, forgive my rabbit trail. When you forgive somebody, you're not saying that you are okay with what they did to you. Forgiveness does not excuse what a person did to you. Dr. Kendall says, just as God forgives people without approving their sin, we also must learn that forgiving people does not imply an endorsement of their evil deeds. So forgiveness is not approval. Number two, forgiveness does not justify the wrong that somebody has done. To justify something means to make it right or just. Forgiveness does not handle sin that way. It's not suggesting that what somebody did that was wrong and sinful was actually rather, in fact, righteous. When you're forgiving somebody, you're not merely saying, okay, what you did to me, you know, you lied to me, you hit me, you hurt me, you swore at me, something like that. What you did is right and just. That's not what forgiveness is. It doesn't justify sin. Number three, forgiveness 
is not pardoning the wrong that somebody did. You say, wait, wait a minute, it's not pardoning? No, it's not. A pardon in the legal sense of the word, the definition of the word, it re- that releases another person from the consequences of the wrong that they did. Forgiveness does not grant a pardon for wrong deeds. Let me give an illustration that Dr. Kendall uses to illustrate this point. He said that when he was pastoring at Westminster Chapel in England, a young woman came to him. She had been raped by a man from another country. That man was arrested. He was going to go on trial And uh, the police wanted her to testify. Now, she knew God's call to forgive that man. And so she was confused. She was wrestling. Because here's the thing. That man came from a country whereby if he was convicted of rape, he would have been deported by England, sent back to that country, and executed, killed for the crime of rape. Uh, because that was how his country handled that. And she was concerned, knowing that God had called her to forgive the man, and knowing that if she testified, that it might lead to his death. So she came to Dr. Kendall for counsel, and he advised her to testify. And she did. She testified as to what the man did to her without hate and malice in her heart. The man was found guilty and deported, but the young woman forgiving this man did not at all mean that she pardoned him. Justice rightly demanded that he pay for his actions. Now, to be clear, justice and revenge are two different things. What happened to this man was not revenge. It was justice. Justice is a good thing. When we forgive somebody, we do relinquish our right to get revenge, but we don't pardon them from the effects of what they've done, particularly when we're dealing with a crime or something like that. Finally, number four, forgiveness is not always reconciliation. Now, that's an important qualifier there. It's not always reconciliation. There's some debate about this in terms of what the Bible calls us to do, but what Dr. Kendall says, and I tend to agree with him, is this. Reconciliation implies a restoration of a relationship. When a husband and wife totally forgive each other, it will usually mean reconciliation, but not always in every case. The bitterness And the desire to punish the other person may be gone, but the wish to restore things to the way that they were may not necessarily be so strong. For instance, if your spouse is unfaithful and sleeps with your best friend, God forbid, both your marriage and your friendship will probably never be the same, no matter how genuine the forgiveness that is offered. An injured person can forgive an offender without full reconciliation. It is wonderful indeed if the relationship can be restored, but this must not be pressed in most cases. Some things can never be the same again. It takes two to reconcile, and there must be total willingness on both parts. Now, that's from the book Total Forgiveness, page 14 and 15. So what is forgiveness? 
And I like how John Piper breaks it down here. He gives a biblical definition of seven elements of forgiveness. Each of its parts comes from a passage of scripture. Number one, Forgiveness means resisting thoughts of revenge. Romans twelve nineteen. never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Number two, forgiveness means we don't seek to do them mischief. 1 Thessalonians five fifteen. see that no one repays an- another with evil for evil. Number three, forgiveness means wishing well to somebody who hurt you. Luke 6, 6, 28, bless those who curse you. Number four, we grieve when something terrible happens to them. Proverbs twenty four seventeen. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Number five, pray for them. Matthew five forty four. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Number six, and we'll talk about this in a second, seek reconciliation with them, says Piper. Romans twelve eighteen. if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And finally, number seven, says Piper, forgiveness means being willing to come to their relief. Exodus 23, 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. Now, I note here that Kendall and Piper disagree with whether or not reconciliation is necessary in order to forgive. If you'll forgive me, allow me to take a bit of a middle position there and agree that sometimes reconciliation is necessary and is best, but there are other times, for instance, sexual abuse physical abuse. The example that Dr. Kendall used of adultery between a spouse and a best friend. Other similar cases like that, where full reconciliation may not be possible or mandated, but forgiveness must still be offered. I hope that makes sense, and it will require wisdom to walk out some of these things. But this is what I want to say to you. Forgiveness is commanded by God for us who have been wronged because we ourselves have been forgiven and we express that forgiveness to others. It may be hard, but I assure you, it will be good for you to forgive. It will be a blessing for you to forgive. Remember, God is a God of justice. He will repay Vengeance is his. It doesn't have to be yours. He will make things right. You forgive and walk in his peace. I should forgive and walk in his peace. And now let's read Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of pi Haharath between Migdal and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal-Zephon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, What have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. 
So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took six hundred of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out defiantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea by Pi-Haharath in front of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. There was cloud and darkness. It lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud, and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the 
power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptian, Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. Job 32. So these three men quit answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, son of Barakel, the Bootsite from the family of Ram, became angry. He was angry at Job because he had justified himself rather than God. He was also angry at Job's three friends because they had failed to refute him and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were all older than he, but when he saw that the three men could not answer Job, he became angry. So Elihu, son of Barakel, the Bootsite, replied, I am young in years while you are old. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to tell you what I know. I thought that age should speak and maturity should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a person, the breath from the Almighty, that gives anyone understanding. It is not only the old who are wise or the elderly who understand how to judge. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I too will declare what I know. Look, I waited for your conclusions, I listened to your insights as you sought for words, I paid close attention to you, yet no one proved Job wrong, not a one of you refuted his arguments. So do not claim we have found wisdom, let God deal with him, not man. But Job has not directed his argument to me, and I will not respond to him with your arguments." Job's friends are dismayed and can no longer answer. Words have left them. Should I continue to wait now that they are silent? Now that they stand there and no longer answer? I too will answer. Yes, I will tell what I know. For I am full of words and my spirit compels me to speak. My heart is like unvented wine. It is about to burst like new wineskins. I must speak so that I can find relief. I must open my lips and respond." I'll be partial to no one, and I will not give anyone an undeserved title, for I don't even know how to give such titles, otherwise my Maker would remove me in an instant. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit, for if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have have pain from those who ought to give me joy, because I'm confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it's for your benefit in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord opened a door for me, I had no rest in my spirit because I didn't find my brother Titus. Instead, I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who 
always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. Who's adequate for these things? For we do not market the word of God for profit like so many. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. Amen. I hope that the word of God has been an encouragement and a blessing for you. I hope it edifies you and builds you up. May God bless you. Godspeed.